Hey, it's Zoe, and I'm a leadership expert who focuses on the people stuff. I love working with CEOs and their teams on that tough stuff, the people stuff. As I've been writing my new book, and it's called, wait for it, People Stuff, I'm becoming aware of a huge opportunity for leaders and teams right now. The opportunity is to expand perspective, to really look forward to what's coming and how we can navigate it, as well as see what are the patterns that are driving the future opportunities that are facing us. There's an opportunity to sharpen leadership thinking and sharpen leadership skills and to become masterful with the people stuff. If there's ever been a time when we need masterful leadership, it's now. And I'd love to work with some more teams and CEOs around this. Virtually, of course, (laughs) we can absolutely do this remotely. We're all becoming quite masterful at doing that. So if you want to get ready for what's next and go out and get it, then let's have a chat. All you need to do is go to zoerouth.com, click on contact, and we'll get hooked up and we'll have a conversation about what's going on and what could be happening and how you might go about going and getting it. Woohoo! Sounds great. So I'm pretty excited about the future, and so is my guest today. If you've been listening to anything or reading anything in the news for the last few weeks, months, the words change, pivot, transformation, and unprecedented, are probably all sick of all of those words, are basically hallmarks of what's happening for us right now. Does all of that fill you with fear or excitement? For me, it's excitement. For my guest, who is Joe Jackman, it's also excitement. He is a reinventionist mindset specialist. He is CEO of Jackman Reinvents, and he says it's the world's first and foremost reinvention company. He has been an advisor to consumer brands, retailers, and B2B companies, working with some huge organizations across Canada, the USA, and globally. His career has been as a strategist, creative director, marketer, and now reinventionist. He's got a beautiful new book out called The Reinventionist Mindset, Learning to Love Change and the Human How of Doing It Brilliantly. And in this fantastic conversation, we explore the nature of change as it's happening right now, what's really critically different about that, and how we can cherry pick ideas and ways of thinking and being and doing to get through it in a brilliant way. There's huge opportunities. So let's get into it. Well, all the way from just outside of Toronto, Canada, we have Joe Jackman. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Zoe. I'm really excited to be with you uh, here today. And I'm thrilled to be interviewing another Canadian. It's so nice to hear a Canadian accent. And I think living in another country, you become aware of accents. Um, And it's only when you get to go back and visit that you you can hear the resonance of it, of of another way of talking that is long remembered. So it's, I'm very grateful to have you here and to talk Canadian with me, eh? <laughs> right on. <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best to, uh, to come off as the, the true Canadian. Most of my work <laughs> is in America. So people actually up in Canada say to me, Joe, you're, you're starting to sound like you're an American. And, <laughs> and I think it's I flatten certain vowels and, you know, I say, um, you know, progress instead of progress and, and a few other giveaways, but uh, true and true, a, a Canadian. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> well, the first question I have for you is, is the tough one. And uh, I love asking this question because it gets such a variety of answers. And you've had, you've had so many different experiences with so many different businesses in reinvention. And we're going to dive into that content shortly. The question is, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize that you could do it? 
It's uh, the toughest question of all because I think it's a work in progress for me. As you mentioned, I've had the opportunity to help a number of companies, um, over 40 now, with transformation of one kind or another. And, and in that work, I'm working very closely with usually CEOs, uh, their leadership teams, as well as often board members, uh, because uh, in my work, usually lots of capital is involved. And so I get a front row seat on what I would describe as real leadership. And the nature of my work usually is companies that are not faring so well. And it doesn't necessarily mean they're a broken business, but there are circumstances where you know, growth isn't coming as easily as it once did, or the competitive threat, maybe even disruption, is uh, greater and more consequential than ever before. And all of that uh, means that I see leaders not only doing what they do with their businesses, but also in the most challenging of circumstances and sometimes requiring tremendous uh, and courageous decisions. So I really feel like I've been schooled on, on leadership. And, and what I would distinguish is the great leaders are not only ones that can lead a team through good times, but the most challenging, and make the kinds of decisions that set them up, even if they're short-term pain for mid to longer term gain. And that, I think, distinguishes uh, people that technically are you know, competent and, and those that are truly uh, the strongest of, of leaders. Uh, and uh, that's how I think about leadership. And it's, a, it's tough making those decisions um, because often they're in the face of great uncertainty. And you talk a lot about uncertainty in your book. And sometimes you don't have a lot of information to go on, but there's ways of getting clarity through the uncertainty. So a couple of things I want to, to drill down on in regards to this is at the moment, there's a lot of businesses that are on the edge because of the pandemic shutdown and probably the best opportunity to take on board your reinventionist mindset principles what are you saying to the businesses around you that are at the edge? Like you say that a lot of your work has been where leaders are struggling for whatever reason. And now it seems like the conditions are accentuated. Where are you? What's your message going out to leaders at the moment? So in the normal course, uh, so this would be pre-COVID-19 and all that's come with it, I would be sharing almost evangelizing the idea of change before you need to. And as part of that, the condition being that most leaders feel they have strategies that are viable, that any downturn or weakness in performance, you know, will with a little more effort, a little, perhaps a double down here or there will be rectified and, and we'll get back to normal. Uh, that's that's a very powerful idea in leaders' minds. And oftentimes what me and my team are helping leaders do is write a case for change. Simply, the world has evolved in these ways. There is reason for us to consider more than just in incremental tweaks to our business model or our customer experience or our value proposition or all of the above. And that these are the insights that we gather that will help us re-strategize and define a, a way forward. And that's a pretty typical 
early part of the process. Let's write the case for change. And that we're going to draw on that as we go. In the context of COVID-19, well, there is a massive case for change already written, and that is <laughs> the world is shutting down. And it's implicating pretty much every business and every leader and almost every employee. So what's changed is, is the very nature of change itself. It's now universal. We must do things differently in order to uh, survive. And that creates a different um, dynamic because it comes with, you know, well, there's always anxiety. Uh, this is borderline panic when we have leaders who are saying, look, I, I don't know if we're going to make it through this. And the sad part about it in, in some sectors, retail would be one where there was a need to change for many years. And there was a resistance on the part of leaders to make necessary changes, or if they didn't make change, they didn't make it fast enough or deep enough. And unfortunately, a lot of businesses today uh, are being caught short. And as the COVID-19 crisis you know, continues to, to reach into every corner of commerce, similarly to, to the impact it's having in the human world, where the weakest are the, the highest risk, it's the same in the commercial world. Those who you know, perhaps didn't evolve or keep pace, those who didn't make changes quickly enough, who ended up being exposed to competitive threats and disruption, well, now they're caught short. And that's not a good place to be. So the advice I give uh, to leaders to answer your question directly is uh, let's take stock of what we have to work with. Let's not be... Um, paralyzed by uh, the circumstances, but let's use the moment when things can't be normal, when everyone is in the same boat, which actually has a blessing uh, mm. and a silver lining to it, which is competitively, there's a, a level playing field. Everyone is experiencing the same thing. The only differences from player to player are what was their starting point and how deep are their pockets. Yeah. But you know, everyone is, is, is being asked the same question. What's changing? And, and the follow-on question, what do we do about it so that we can come out of this stronger and with a winning proposition, an evolved proposition, experience, et cetera? One thing you said was, what has changed is the nature of change itself. Can you just unpack that a little bit for me? So change, you know, comes in cycles. We're, you know, we're familiar with that in, in the business world. It could be the life cycle of a business model. It could be the life cycle of a brand. It could be the degree to which consumer expectations are evolving. All of those things were, are, are normal in that over some period of time, you know, the way I like to think of it, you know, over time, every strategy will fail. And so we're used to revisiting, not very frequently in the past, but our fundamental strategies, you know, who are we focused on and why, who are we to them? How do we distinguish ourselves from their other options? How do we, you know, optimize the, the economic model in light of the, those choices? And we'll do that on some, you know, historically some 10, 15 year cycle. Maybe in the more recent past, in the last decade, it's compressing. It's starting to become more frequent. Well, when a change like the current crisis comes along, it changes the nature of change in the sense that 
everything happens at once. Every life cycle is now reboot has been hit. We must now re-examine because of the profundity of the circumstances. Where are we in the world as it starts to reveal the new normal? And we've never, not a, certainly in my working lifetime, have we ever all at once as a business community, regardless of sector, had to face that enormity of change um, simultaneously. And that's why I say this is something net new, because if you think about a reboot of everyone's strategy and operating plans and position in the marketplace and the way that they go about delivering what their value proposition is and the customer experience and all that goes with it, we're all rebooting at the same time. Mm. And, and that's, that is both daunting as well as super exciting. And I, and I tend to be more of an optimist. Maybe people from Winnipeg, Canada are, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You have to be when you've got six months of winter to face down. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I'm so jealous of your, of your Australian home. I know you do have winter there, but I I don't think it's quite as extreme. Um, It is not. (laughs) um, But, you know, here we're, we're in this incredibly exciting moment, even saying it that way, you know, might make people wince and they'll say, really, Joe, do you think this is an exciting moment? And I, I believe it is, you know, all empathy for the impact that this is having on people's lives and wherewithals. But in, in a pure business context, we have this opportunity to re-examine not only how we do what we do with an eye to making it stronger and more relevant. Reinvention to me is just the pursuit of not only growth, but relevance. And that you know, fluid cycle of continually re-examining the choices that we make in, as business leaders and making sure that it's right for the times and the moment and the dynamics. So, so here we have this kind of level set, this great reset. And we get to ask the most fundamental questions. What do, um, what do people care about now? Mm. What um, do they value? Who are we to them? And specifically, which ones are we focused on? And how can we, in, in light of you know, very challenging circumstances, and, and even in some cases, sorry, you just can't do it the way you used to for this reason or another. You can't keep your stores open or, or you know, sell in the way you did or communicate or bring people into physical space to you know, share lessons and to teach them you know, on university campuses. All of that is in flux. But I think that actually causes us to do two things which excite me. The first is to have just simply the moment when you can ask and answer those most fundamental questions again and reset the way you think about your place in the world and how you can go forward and prosper. But connected to that is what you've been forced to do for the last weeks and in a few places in the world months as workarounds, because I, what I find is, you know, that expression, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. I would say necessity is also the mother of reinvention. Those scrappy, well, if we can't do it this way, maybe we could, you know, get this to work or, gee, we used to, you know, use these sort of bigger engines to do these things, but here's, you know, that's not going to work. So here's a scrappy way to get across what we need to, or, you know, I read an article in my local market recently 
that 37 local food stores, tiny, you know, single unit or only several unit chains, have now gone to direct delivery or order pickup in store. And in the Canadian market, and it might be true in Australia, that's pretty much the domain of the big players. The whole direct delivery platforms, technological distribution systems, you know, couriers, all that, Instacart, et cetera. And here are 37 small players figuring out that their customers need them to get it to them because they can no longer come and shop in their stores. And so they figured it out. And I'm sure it's not all exactly the same way that they figured it out, but they're doing it. Do you think that that's going to cause them to change the way they think about their customer service and their engagement with, with customers and even their economics and, and their range of possibilities? I think it's going to change. What's happening right now is going to change the way business leaders think about their businesses. I'm about to put out a paper, um, it should, should be out the part one next week, about what I think is actually not going to revert back. And a lot of it is these innovative new ways of thinking that are causing businesses to just figure it out so that they can survive. And I think those will be the roots of, of their uh, not just surviving, but thriving into the future. So, Joe, I'm curious about this notion of the changing nature of relationships between businesses and their customers. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Do you have examples about that? Yes. In fact, what we're witnessing across categories is this level of ingenuity and creativity and and innovation to serve customers in very restricted circumstances, you know, in some cases, their stores are closed or health regulations are preventing them from doing things as usual. And uh, we're fascinated by how retailers and, and other companies that serve customers directly are engaged in this incredible workaround process. And what is most inspiring about uh, that, whether it's say SoulCycle would be a good example where they're figuring out um, digital ways and platforms to bring their community together to have the same kind of experience in a digital way that might take place in one of their studios. But it's the act of trying new ways, sometimes very scrappily, uh, you know, stood up um, uh, platforms and solutions, but in the process, engaging with customers and getting their, you know, their ideas and their direct feedback and adjusting as they go, and we see that across, you know, supermarkets and and drugstores. Of course, the so-called essential services, but also, you know, many many brands. You know, I, I think you could look across the spectrum, large and small, and find really good examples. You know, Nike, um, Apple, Apple's making some of its programming, which would typically be um, paid for, you know, free. Um, movie studios saying hey, normally we would put this first release movie through uh, theaters, but of course that's not happening. People aren't gathering in in theatrical venues. So let's go direct to uh, uh, streaming services. And of course that is um, shaking the industry because it's it's a standard that has been long held. So we're really excited by this um, for a couple of reasons. One, you know, the brands that engage with their customers in real time 
and seek their <clears throat> not only their insight and ideas but their feedback you know how are we doing is this working for you we think is is just an incredible um, development and a benefit out of this crisis and then the second thing is it's spurring um, people to say well in normal course we probably wouldn't you know do direct delivery in the way we're doing today but we have no choice either that or our customers go without and our business um, goes without revenue so let's figure it out team and that i think is is one of the big benefits that's going to come out of all of this and do you think that a lot of organizations will like the direct delivery concept will maintain that as a service or they're going to wait and see what the customers want I believe that the just the habit of buying digitally and direct delivery, it might be pickup in store, it might be pickup in another convenient location. I think that we will see a, a growth in that expectation. I think, you know, we talked earlier about this idea of new normal. Mm. I, I just read a stat that said um, in mid-March, and this was an American study, that um, 40% roughly of those surveys said that they will change their behavior beyond this crisis in ways that they've been learning, you know, how convenient it might be to shop online and get things delivered. Well, that number in three weeks from mid-March to the first week in April grew from low 40s to uh, mid 60s, 66%. Wow. And so what that customer in that survey is saying is, I'm kind of in this scrappy workaround with all my retail and brand partners, but I'm liking this. And I think that there's some ways of doing things that are just smarter and more efficient. But one of the big reasons that, uh, that I think it will stick is health. You know, the, the idea of shopping alongside other customers in environments, you know, will come back. Of course it will. But I think that it's going to take some time and it'll come in stages. And in the meantime, health and safety has just rocketed up to the top of consumer considerations of how to make choices. And so, you know, in the, in the future, you know, touchless contact and assurances around hygienic practices and all that, well, delivery and pickup is arguably a lot um, safer than actually shopping in, in physical stores. And, and we can see, you know, Instacart, its downloads uh, doubled in a week. What's, what's Instacart? What is that? Oh, Instacart is in uh, primarily America, but, but also um, in uh, North America and Canada. Uh, Instacart is a, a grocery delivery platform. Okay. And, uh, you know, they've had some success, but if you look at um, delivered groceries like click and collect or actual delivery to home, it's still in America uh, a very, very low percentage of sales that go through that channel. Now, Instacart is a big player and they're getting you know larger partnerships with big retailers, big supermarket chains. And the consumer is just you know flooding into their site to sign up and to set themselves up for that option. So we, and that's just one of many indicators we're seeing. So I think it's going to stick. Here, the demand for grocery delivery shot through the roof as soon as the, the shutdown started. And all the major supermarkets said, we're not taking any more orders because we can't keep up. <laughs> so it, they crashed right? and burned yeah. pretty quickly. So yeah, I think the online grocery delivery will 
if they get the infrastructure right, and they've had to go out and hire some thousands of new staff to take on board the the pressure on the system here. So from people shopping more in the supermarkets instead of going out, as well as doing online deliveries. Yeah. Um, so that's it. Like this, the statistic that you quoted there, a change of forty percent to sixty six percent in a few short weeks is is remarkable consumer behavior change, which is, as you say, likely to to be maintained. Yeah. One of the questions I'd love for you to respond to and explore with me is, I can see this in terms of consumerism, that it will have a long-term knock-on effect. I can also see it have a long-term knock-on effect on gatherings, uh, whether it be big, massive social gatherings like parties, through to concerts, through to sporting events, through to, in well, in my field, it's in face-to-face training and speaking engagements and conferences. What do you think will happen in those kind of spaces? Well, I, I think there's a similar effect that will happen there, similar in the sense that we're in this extended period of trial with you know many uh, new channels and and in lots of cases, brands and service partners that we didn't use before, and so on. And in the entertainment world and the, the sporting world, you know, everything is shut down as well. And it's been replaced to some degree with, you know, hey, you can watch, you know, the football games from from past seasons, you know, when you would normally be watching the live event. But also, uh, digital engagement of a different kind, you know, platforms that are starting to host uh, community dialogue with fans, um, you know, including professional players. And I think even uh, the online participation uh, that's happening, like take, take, for example, a game like Fortnite, if you're, if you're familiar with that, you know, that a lot of young people are playing. Essentially, that is a very arena-like experience happening within a digital environment. And it's quite competitive. There's, you know, prizes and leaderboards and so on. And I think what has begun already in the sporting world, particularly where there is a digital version that can be very, very real. I think actually we're going to see hybrid digital and and physical um, events starting to take place. I think eventually we'll get back to stadiums full of people witnessing sports. But I think in the shorter term, what we may see is those sports taking place in stadiums, no participants or no fans in the stadium seats, but a digital overlay that is allowing people that are watching that remotely to participate in new ways and in, and in regulated environments where gambling is okay, for example, um, you know, they've changed the rules in America around sports um, gambling online. I think you're going to see levels of engagement and hybrid experiences that don't require, you know, 50,000 people literally in a stadium. And, and I'm excited by that because I think, you know, the, the digital engagement that we've seen as a result of the crisis already is just richer, deeper. It's more interesting. And, you know, will it go back to normal? I, I don't know. I think there'll be a, a new normal in that regard. So I'm trying to visualize what you mean by all this sort of digital engagement. So if I'm watching a football game, say, for example, digitally through my computer or through my smart TV, 
might I have a virtual reality headset and I'm watching the screen and I can imagine the fans next to me. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Or are you talking more like... Yes, yeah. Oh, that is what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and imagine if, you know, if you're watching an event on, on television or, or even in the stands and the screens are visible, you'll see, for example, the television cameras will take um, certain angles of the plays and so on. Well, imagine in a VR environment where you can decide where you'd like to see that play for, uh, situated from, like an aerial view looking down as if you're a drone, you know, uh, an, an in situation as if you're one of the players, or I'd like to see that from an angle. Imagine if you have the controls to then rewind that play. Well, you know, the play might be continuing, but you can rewind it and just see how they called that. Now imagine on that same screen, the players that you're watching, you can click and tab their stats. You can you can see matchups one against the other and how they've fared, you know, historically. Like that whole realm of information and the participant in control it exists in the gaming world and it's starting to port over into the, the sporting world. And, and I think we're going to see uh, hybridization happen. Um, to an extent we've never seen. And, you know, if I think about, for example, in Korea, South Korea, competitive gaming, things like Fortnite and and uh, those kind of uh, electronic games has become not just a real, you know, an engaging pursuit for those who like that sort of thing. It's become a spectator sport. Well, guess what's happening? People that are playing those games digitally are drawing crowds of people that are sitting in theaters, like actual theaters, watching the games being played digitally. That's weird. <laughs> we're already seeing it happen. And, and I think that we're going to see more of that as a result of this crisis. Yeah, right. Okay. That is somewhat weird to go to a theater to watch other people play a video game. Bizarre. But yeah. I guess um, you yeah. know, that's entertainment. You can get hooked by, by the action. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I'm thinking of the the opera singer um, who just sang in a Milan cathedral, drawing a blank on his name. But he delivered this extraordinary performance to an empty cathedral. And yet millions of people around the world tuned in to hear him sing. And Andrea Bocelli. Oh, Andrea Bocelli. Bocelli. Yeah, yeah. And it caused me to think that we're breaking down barriers between what performer and spectator relationship is and how it should take place. And I've long thought that, you know, the popularity of things like opera or even performance arts like ballet, unfortunately are locked in this, this old world of that's the, you know, the beautiful theater that I go to and I spend a lot of money to, to enjoy. And it is starting to change. We're seeing movie theaters starting to show, you know, performances, operatic performances and so on. But I think that that kind of crossover and the possibilities are going to emerge. And we see it certainly in entertainment where they're saying, hey, we can go to theater or we can go to live stream or we can go to some combination. And more and more, we'll see the integration of these of these streams. That's very cool. So you are on the cutting edge of new stuff. You've got this fabulous new book out called The Reinventionist Mindset, Learning to Love Change and the Human How of Doing It Brilliantly, which I must say is a bold claim considering how many people 
find change challenging in many instances. And so you've got these mindset principles in here. So if you're sitting across the table or <laughs> through the screens and the airwaves as we are right now. Through the screen. Through the screen, <laughs> yep. And you're talking to a business owner such as me or a CEO, and we've got this new radically different context. What do you say to them in terms of how do we move forward through this? What are some key things like that they can take on board to get into the reinventionist mindset and practice? Well, I wrote the book, thank you for mentioning it, for you know a very, very obvious reason. I couldn't help but notice when I consulted to companies that were hanging on too long to the status quo and suffering for that, um, you know, getting caught short as the world changed and expectations or their competitors evolved. And they were, um, as a result, experiencing downticks in performance and perhaps not the same kind of, you know, strength strategically, competitively. And I, I kept puzzling over, um, you know, why is it that very, very smart people and good experienced leaders leave change for so long. And then I, I left the consulting world after many, many years, and I joined um, the executive ranks of one of my clients, a very, very large publicly traded retailer in Canada. And I, I became um, you know, a member of the executive team. And what I learned firsthand was how difficult change is in you know, small businesses, medium businesses, and big businesses just because there's a lot of risk attached to change. And as business people, we're trained to assess the risk of new things, doing things in new ways. We're not trained and we don't always pay as much attention to the risk of not changing. And I started to learn that firsthand, uh, you know, as an executive. And then I, I dug in deeper and found that what is at the root cause of our human instinct to avoid change at all costs, <laughs> like to not, not just sort of, hmm, I'm not sure about it, but like to run the other way. And it's uh, for a bunch of reasons. It's, you know, it's, a, it's uncertainty. You know, the, the, the things we know are predictable. The things that we don't are harder to predict. And business leaders like reliability and predictability, uh, of course. But, you know, the, the status quo is only a good place as long as it's a viable place. And the world has a way of moving ahead, changing the context around many of these businesses. You know, I've worked with about 40 of them since I set out my shingle and, and, and built a, a consultancy focused on business transformation, reinvention. And what I found was that it's actually um, relatively straightforward to make change possible if you break it down to uh, just some very simple um, principles or, or, or ideas of how to do it. And so the book is, um, is five principles, the re collectively the reinventionist mindset. They're so straightforward and so simple, like they're either three words or two words, that they can easily be dismissed. You might sort of say, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. And really, would that make a difference? And yet what I've learned in, in all of these cases, and I write uh, the story of eight cases of transformation, most of which were very successful and a few that weren't, you know, what happened when a leadership team said, yikes, we're in trouble? What is it that they did? How did they either say, look, 
let's just work harder. Let's double down on the way things are and, and maybe we can get through this. Or did they start to behave differently? And along the way, I wrote down those things that changed the way we were thinking as a team, the way we were behaving, that seemed to make a difference, that upped the odds of, of a successful outcome. And they're, you know, they're, they're simple, like seek insight everywhere. That's just opening up the aperture to what's going on around you. Do it not just within the category of business that you're in, but beyond because customers travel from category to category and they take their expectations with them. Or, you know, here's another simple one. Create the future now. I find a lot of business leaders will think about reinvention or transformation, if you will, in very, very... um, kind of precious terms, like, well, we better be very certain. We better, you know, invest not only a lot of energy, but time into getting it right. And I find it causes this stasis of of action that, you know, let's sort of make sure before we take any steps, well, the world moves faster today than ever before. And that time is a luxury we can no longer afford. And so, you know, create the future now is a principle that's just centered around get it out of your head, get it out of the lab and get your intention into the market and do it in an iterative way. And, you know, I took that right out of the tech industry. I started to apply what I was seeing as more of a, an innovation approach where we're, we're not probably going to get it right out of the gate, but at least we're going to get it in motion. And I I learned this important lesson, you know, balance getting it right and perfect with getting all of it. And that's the way you can keep pace. So, you know, continually create the future. Otherwise, the future is done to you. You know, you've just been trying to perfect it while everyone else is, you know, racing to evolve and including those disruptors that are having, you know, havoc with old legacy businesses. And you get caught short and then you're behind the curve and it's more expensive and a lot harder to reinvent a business that has lasted too long. So I won't go through all the principles. I'm sure um, you're getting the gist of it, but, but these were hard earned um, lessons. And as I say, the, I think the most valuable case examples, the stories I tell in the book are the ones that didn't go so well and why they were the hardest to write. And these are businesses, you know, if you were um, in the American market, you'd be very familiar with these um, brand names that I'm speaking of, brands like Old Navy, you know, Dwayne Reed, if you happen to be a resident of New York City, uh, David Buster is a very popular uh, national um, chain of, uh, you know, it's an arcade restaurant concept. And uh, in real life, behind the scenes stories, I'm just gathering what did we set out to do? What were the insights we uncovered? How did that shape the strategy we developed? How do we not sort of top down, push it to, you know, the organization and say, okay, everybody, here's the strategy, you know, just go and do these things. But how did we engage the entire community of people, got them to think differently about change. And as a result, get everybody to not only understand where we wanted to go by helping to create that path, but also to get excited about it. You know, we humans like to support, you know, that which we help to create. We also get excited when we can see what the future looks like. So let's make it tangible. Let's, you know, the last um, second from the last principle is obsess the outcome. Well, you can't craft a strategy to take you to a place you haven't defined. So, 
you know, get busy defining where is it that we want to go and what might that place look like and feel like. And if you can get that happening, people have a tendency to move towards what they can see and what they get excited about. And then the last one I think is the most fundamental of all, and I made it the last of five principles, make momentum together. You know, this idea of, you know, particularly larger organizations, but it's surprising even small and medium organizations can be so siloed, people doing their thing, their part of the puzzle. The more you can get people together thinking about the future, creating it, crafting it, you know, getting clear on how you're going to go and achieve it, the more you can create power. You know, alignment equals power. And there's nothing more powerful than a community of people in an organization, in a cultural sense, that come together and say, we're here, we know why we have to change, we're good with that, we're excited about where we're going, we can see it, and we know what it's going to bring us as a reward, and now let's go and get it. And to get that whole organization leaning in and moving forward, it becomes unstoppable. And that's what we want on our side, particularly businesses that are faced with, with big change and leaders that are coping with that. What you want on your side is momentum, where everyone just says, we know exactly where we're going and we're all going in the same direction. And we want to get there soon. We're moving at a pace. And, uh, you know, that's an exciting moment. And then, then it just becomes an exercise in sustaining it. So I talk, about, I talk about all these things in the book, and I appreciate you asking. I think one of the things that's emerging as I'm listening to you and um, revisiting the principles since I read the book is the role of leadership is fundamentally different than it was 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, in that you don't have the leadership team locked away in its own little enclave coming up with the plans mm-hmm. that you throw the net much further and wider, you know, and the way that you talked about, you know, talk to your customers, what do they want, what's working, talk to your team, get everyone together. And this, this collaboration piece, this consulting piece, this facilitation process is really a different role and skill that leaders need to really adapt and adapt to quickly. Yes, completely. And it's, it's interesting that the archetype of behavior really, and this is really more your world than mine, was really fashioned on the military. And that's really where strategy came from and was applied, you know, not that long ago to the business world by the first management consultants like James McKenzie. And, and that military construct of, you know, being incredibly analytical, understanding choices and scenario planning and using facts and rational thinking to make sound choices all of that, I agree with. I, the only thing I've added to that mix is more of a human sense of you know, purpose and human insight that can help guide in those choices, those strategic choices. But the other part of the military um, reference was the behavior of this kind of top-down, like a very small, as you're suggesting, a very small group of people come together every once in a while. It's very kind of almost secretive. They craft the strategy, usually with the help of, you know, management consultants. And then they, like tablets from on high, turn them into orders and say, okay, here's where we're going. Most times it's expressed as, you know, uh, numbers. <laughs> you know, here's the, here's the targets we're going to hit. 
And then, uh, you know, everyone has their orders, go. And, and it's almost devoid of the humanity of storytelling and, um, and making things tangible and exciting. And actually, like I even say to people, if you're going to share strategy, make sure it's not all numbers. Make sure that there is a narrative there. Make sure that there are images there that show and paint a picture of where it is you're going. The numeric aspect is super important. Of course, it's a business. But the other aspects make it real for people and allow you to connect not just with head, but with heart. And if you can get those two things together, you'll get people to say, wow, we're going to go there. We're going to achieve that kind of commercial success. And it's going to be super exciting for us because we can kind of understand what it is. But in the military situation, just coming back to that, there's that kind of top-down method of the most senior people craft the strategy and everybody else down through the chain just has their orders and you're on a need to know basis and, you know, go execute your part. But what's missed in the military example, which I think is so fascinating is the emotional content is embedded in the entire operating model of the military. Do you think a soldier, it doesn't matter which country or what situation, do you think a soldier is going to war to fight a battle on the basis only of these are your orders. I need you to, you know, do these things, take that hill, what have you. The emotional content is what are we fighting for? We're fighting for freedom. We might be fighting to hold up ideals. Uh, we might be fighting for our lives because other people are threatening us. We might be fighting because we are, you know, in this together and we feel a, a, a sense of, you know, commonality. And that galvanizes and gives us, you know, additional courage and willpower. All of that's real in the military. But somehow that part didn't get translated into, you know, the strategy that's practiced in the business world. And that's what I'm arguing for in the book is a more human way to not only shape strategy, but to bring it to life. And, and I, I, I remember chatting with a CEO that I've worked with for a few years, and she said to me, what I find, Joe, that's interesting about your strategy is you ask, you know, leaders when you first start up with them, do you have a strategy? Do you believe you have a strategy? And almost every leader, I'm sure this is your experience too, will say, yes, of course we do. By my definition, you only have a strategy if everyone in your organization not only knows what that is, can articulate it, but also uh, believes it to be true, achievable, and can feel it. You know, strategy must not only be understood, it must be felt. And, and, and by that definition, most companies actually fall short. So, uh, you know, that's, that's is one of the tests of, of do you in fact have a strategy is whether your people um, not only understand it, but believe in and, and feel something about it. That's, so. that's really powerful. And I love how you weave strategy in with story in terms of engaging hearts and minds. And I think that's a lovely way. It's an inspiring way to help people think about reinvention as they face down all, these, all this grand new context in which we find ourselves. Joe, where can people find your book? Well, the, the most direct way would be joejackman.com. And on that uh, is a link to the book. And it would um, point to a number of retailers around the globe. Amazon 
primarily in markets beyond North America. Um, just got a note from a colleague in France, and uh, he had picked it up through Amazon. But there's also um, other other retailers um, there. And uh, and thank you for asking. I'm I'm, I'm super excited to, to hear feedback from people. That's one of the things that I'm encouraging is if you happen to read an article that I've been part of or or listen to your podcast. I would love it if you read the book. Um, but uh, if you have thoughts, feedback, dialogue, I would love to hear from you. There's a link to communicate with me. And uh, I think that's how we get it better. I just took, you know, everything I'd learned up to that point, I just threw it out. It's not perfect. It's a work in progress, but I, I'm hoping there's value in it for uh, readers. That's very gracious, and I'm sure people would love to connect with you in a virtual world with virtual headsets (laughs) (laughs) or even via old school email. The book is beautifully put together. I think you need to congratulate your publisher for doing that. The the neon pink is just sensational, and the paperweight is is lovely. Like, it's a lovely book to touch and feel. So, you know, apart from the content, the packaging is fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, having having grown up in the world of uh, of brand design and such, it, it uh, I think I might have been my publisher's, uh, you know, one of their most challenging authors. <laughs> but oh, good they for did you. a brilliant job. It's page two, page yeah. two books. Um, thank you so much, Zoe. This has been great. Thank you, Joe. This was such a provocative and evocative conversation. It's lovely always talking to a fellow Canadian. His book is awesome. I have so many little ticky, sticky notes in it in terms of what is useful and how I can go out and apply it. So I encourage you all to go out and grab a copy and to study it. I certainly would go back and read through the case studies yet again to take the learnings of what worked and what didn't. Two things that probably are sticking with me. And one is make momentum together and really taking this on board and thinking about the communities that I lead, the leaders that I work with, and how we can co-create what's next in the things that we're doing together. Uh, I think that's a really powerful takeaway from our conversation. And the other one is create the future now. So don't wait for it to be perfect. Do something and move towards that brand new, exciting, shiny future. Woohoo! And if you want to know what could be possible for you and your team, sing out. Just go to zoeyrouth.com, click on contact, and let's have a conversation. I'd love to find out what's going on for you, what your challenges are, and more importantly, what we could do together to upscale your leadership thinking and the people stuff in your organization. In the meantime, live well, lead well.